Hello, and welcome to Galaxy Brains, your weekly crypto podcast by the Galaxy Digital Research Team. I'm Christine Kim, a research associate here at Galaxy, and I'm standing in for Alex Thorne this week, who usually hosts this podcast. Alex is at Bitcoin. He's at the Bitcoin Miami conference right now, as is literally everybody in the crypto space, it feels like, except for me, Chuck, and Saul. I'm feeling major FOMO. Um, Chuck, Saul, how about you guys? Oh, for sure, for sure. Someone's got to uh, put in the work and uh, hold the fort down, right? (laughs) Yes, we are holding the fort down. And as per usual this week, we're going to be sharing some insights and analysis about the biggest trends in the crypto space from the past week. Our first story for today is the stablecoin neutrino dollar or USDN losing its peg and wiping out about $200 million worth of tokenized collateral in the process. Chuck, can you tell us what the full story is here? So a little bit of drama this uh, past week um, with the Waze blockchain as uh, USDN, the neutrino dollar, which is the algorithmic stable coin of Waves, um, lost its peg, slid as low as uh, 68 cents on the dollar. USDN operates pretty similarly to, to UST, which is a Terra stablecoin, where USDN's collateralized by Waves tokens and can be minted by burning Waves or it can be redeemed for Waves. Now, Waves is another platform chain, been around uh, for a while since 2016. Later on, added like smart contracts and DeFi. It's uh, headquartered in Moscow and has some pretty close ties with Russia. So on the back of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, some had speculated that Russians would turn to waves and use USDN after getting sanctioned. And we saw a ton of growth in the protocol last week. Waves token basically like doubled overnight and uh, TVL on the chain um, jumped to nearly like $5 billion. So the majority of the capital on waves is locked in Neutrino for, for USDN. So really like the success of waves goes hand in hand with the success of USDN. Now, a Twitter user who goes by um, the handle 0xhams published a thread that called out Waves as the biggest Ponzi in crypto, claiming the Waves team was buying Waves tokens um, using borrowed funds on buyers, which is a Waves lending protocol, to pump the demand of Waves rather than letting it grow through organic activity. So this led to a ton of shorting activity on FTX. Funding rates went negative. USDN started decoupling, and in response to this Twitter thread, the founder of Waves, um, Sasha Ivanov, then alleged that Alameda Research um, had been manipulating the price of Waves um, after taking a short position and organizing like a big FUD campaign. Alameda was founded by SBF, head of FTX, and a wallet address tied to Alameda had been found to be borrowing lots amount, large amounts of Waves, but the validity of these claims, you know, hasn't really been proven. A lot of people believe that Alameda was only taking advantage of the funding rates through a Delta neutral trade. But regardless, uh, a governance proposal had been introduced on buyers in order to, um, quote unquote, prevent price manipulation and protect the ecosystem by temporarily reducing the liquidation threshold for waves and USDM borrowers to 0.1% and to limit borrowing rates to a maximum of 40%, which would effectively liquidate all borrowers, including Alameda's position. Buyers also then disabled borrowing for USDN and Waves while leaving it open for USDC and USDT. 
but they were properly called out by users in the governance forum for the unjust proposal. And now uh, USDN has recovered a bit from its lows of 68 cents in the time of recording, it's about 93 cents, which kind of signals that there's been some confidence behind how redeemable this, this stable coin actually is. Um, okay, well, thanks, Chuck, for the for the spicy overview of what happened with the ways and the and the USDN um, stable coin. Let's move on to our next story, which is about the American arm of the largest cryptocurrency exchange by trade volume, Binance. Binance US has raised over $200 million in its first external funding round this week and at a valuation of 4.5 billion. Saul, what's your take here? Yeah, so this was a interesting story that immediately caught my attention. Anytime Binance is mentioned in the news, uh, these guys are the juggernaut of crypto exchanges globally. Uh, they dominate with volumes globally. So uh, seeing their US presence, Binance US, uh, which by the way, was founded in 2019. It's available in 45 states. The reason why it exists is because as many of our listeners know, US securities laws are pretty onerous for crypto. And ultimately, they found that Binance, whose bread and butter is trading a lot of tokens that might look like securities, it's much harder for them to modify the global Binance versus create a separate legal operating entity that's focused on the U.S. market with its uh, strict legal requirements. So they did that. They, they made this in 2019. Yeah, 2019 was when it was created. It has a much smaller product offering than regular Binance. To put that in perspective, there's 198 markets and 88 coins on Binance US, and there are 1,600 markets and 396 coins on regular Binance. So, so much smaller product offerings. And in terms of volume, Binance, regular Binance does 24 billion, or I'm, these are numbers from yesterday, right? So this is 24-hour volume from yesterday, April 5th. Binance regular did 24 billion, and Binance US did 420 million. So that's about 1% of its regular volume. So let's talk about the fundraise a little bit. They raised $200 million at $4.5 billion valuation. This is their first external fundraise ever, not just for Binance US, but for Binance generally. Um, the story with Binance is, is that they they rocketed in growth. They might have been one of the fastest unicorns ever. Um, in 2017, they kind of perfectly rode the ICO wave. And so they were profitable basically right away. And Almost every coin was was traded on Binance. That was kind of how you got it. And they, then they created this whole business model centered on, hey, I have this token project. I want to list it. And you'd kind of pay Binance to get listed. And so they, they were very profitable from the beginning. And then they did the BNB thing. And, that, and we'll talk about that in a second. But that was also a great revenue driver and a loyalty program. Uh, very, very well run business, right? And so finally, in the last year or so, the Binance US entity wanted to do a fundraise. And that's, I think, what Brian Brooks, before he left during his short tenure, was focused on. I think something about that fell through. But finally, about eight months later, they were able to get this fundraise done, the $200 million. Their headcount is about 350 people, which apparently has doubled what it was about a year ago. And uh, in terms of what they want to do with the money, two main things. They want to spin up new products and services, and they want to make acquisitions. And they want to go public within three years in the US, this US operating entity. Now, in terms of comps, a lot of exchanges have been raising recently. So Gemini did $400 million at a $7.1 billion valuation. And FTX US raised $400 million at an $8 billion valuation. So why is this interesting? If you actually look at their volumes, 
for the month of March, FTX US did 5.2 billion in volume, and Gemini did 3.8 billion in volume in March. And Binance US actually did about double at 9.22 billion dollars in volume for that same exact time frame. So we're talking half the valuation, roughly 4.5 billion compared to these two guys. Similar business models, but double the volume. So what this seems to suggest to me is like Binance is being underappreciated by the market, at least in the U.S., which makes sense. They don't really have a ton of brand recognition in the U.S. outside of like crypto people. But what's interesting is they're going to that's going to change. I think they're going to use this money to change that and try to compete against all of these U.S. exchanges. And what's also interesting, there's this other dynamic here play with BNB. Okay, so BNB is their their token. It originally started as an incentive mechanism to trade a lot on Binance. You would basically get discounts for using the token and they would burn these tokens. But it's expanded since then. Now it's actually used for trading fees on Binance. It's used for trading fees on Binance DEX, transaction fees on both Binance Chain and Binance Smart Chain. You can use it for Binance Pay, and then you could also use it for buying tokens on, that were launched through Binance Launchpad. Just to like eliminate any confusion, because there's been a lot of renames recently. So BNB is the token, right? There's this thing called Binance Chain that was launched in 2019 that is not EVM compatible that they tried to use for launching dApps that no one used. Then in 2020, they got smart and they basically made it, I'd call the godfather of all L1s. It was the Binance Smart Chain. This is EVM compatible. It uses proof of authority and delegated proof of stake. It's very centralized. That is where all the adoption was for their smart contract product. But they're renaming that to BNB Smart Chain. But the old Binance chain is actually still being used for staking and voting and governance. And that's being called BNB Beacon Chain. So this is the new BNB product suite. It's the BNB token, BNB smart chain, BNB beacon chain. All those tie together and are, are transacted through BNB, which is tradable on Binance US. And so to the extent we see, and this is the fourth largest coin in the world, BNB, is 70 billion market cap. Um, so I thought that's just really interesting. I think in terms of takes, clearly the U.S. market is really important to crypto because these companies are making bespoke legal operating entities just for this one market. And they think all of that work is worth it. So that speaks a lot about the importance of the U.S. I think the obvious take also is that M&A activity is going to heat up. Coinbase, Kraken, Gemini, FTX, US, Binance, they're all going to try to buy companies and compete for users in this really competitive, important market. The other takes are, I think Binance has kind of taken this interesting vertical integration approach with this product stack. You know, they have the BNB chain, they have the token, they have an exchange, they they bought CoinMarketCap in the last couple of years for pricing. They want to do an NFT marketplace. So let's keep following this logical flow. You know, Web3 is this big trend. Maybe they'll do a wallet. Maybe they'll try to start getting market share from products that are buoyed by the web tree trend. And then finally, I think we're going to see more emphasis and investment in in staking for the US customers from Binance's side, whether that's just, you know, literally you stake through Binance US to get a yield and they want to just expand the marketing on that or or increase the incentives there or maybe like I said earlier they might do a wallet and make that easier. That that seems to me like a pretty easy opportunity for them given that they have you know, they hold so much coin already in their balance sheet and they could become pretty uh, important in the validator ecosystem with that user base. So, so high level, that, that, that's kind of how I see this, this new story. And it's, it's always interesting to see what Binance is doing. Wow. I didn't know that Binance US does, did 
$9 billion in trade volume in March, which is like double that of FTX and, and Gemini. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Digging a little bit deeper, though, into the regulatory issues that finance has just been so renowned for. I mean, not just in the US, but in Europe and Asia. Yeah. I feel like Binance has been such a target for tighter compliance, talking about all the criticisms in terms of, of you know, crypto money laundering, illicit use cases for digital currencies. <laughs> I mean, how likely and feasible do you think it is that Binance US actually continues to succeed and even achieve that time frame of you know going public in three years um, because just the amount of skepticism that I've seen around finance in terms of, of regulators has been so fierce yeah. compared to the track record of like coinbase and FTX which I feel like has cozied up way more to regulators than finance you have yeah hundred percent agree and also Gemini too I mean that was like kind of their marketing you know push you know, we're the <laughs> legal way to, to do crypto and yeah, it's a good point. I think Binance's name is, in some senses, at least in the eyes of regulators, tarnished. And they might even have some active suits against them too, which doesn't help uh, from from like the ICO days. So yeah, that, that could be, that could slow them down. But again, it's it's hard to bet against Binance just given how like incredible their run has been and how sort of impactful the entire business is globally. I would suspect that they might find a way maybe not through traditional channels, but they'll, they'll probably find a way. And I think US regulators are, are quickly finding that it's hard to keep fighting against crypto. And uh, competition ultimately is good, even if you know Binance's name isn't, isn't the best, you know, given the history with the ICO boom in 2017. The US entity, for, for all intents and purposes, does seem to be like it's, it's following the rules and it's, it's a very limited product. So I don't know. I, I'm still somewhat bullish on on that happening in three years yeah actually when you were talking about the the rationale for bnb mm -hmm. keeping an eye on bnb and it's it's potential um run up in terms of all these different use cases for this token as confusing as the name changes are yeah. um you had mentioned that the bnb token has like this supply cap on it yeah i mean how likely is it that you know finance could just change the cap and like increase the supply i mean I, I i too agree with you that it does seem as though the use cases for bnb and a limited supplier are, are just like really bullish indicators yeah but i'm concerned about i mean has there ever been a time in which bnb supply was just you know increased or or changed no as far as i know it has not i mean it's a good point though again because BNB is like basically cz like all the validators there's like 20 validators i think they just expanded it to 40 like recently uh, and it's impossible to be a validator on it. Like you need, even if you hit the capital requirements, which is probably like 30, 40 million or something like that US, like you have to get approved still. Uh, that's why they call it proof of authority. It's not decentralized, unlike all these other coins and all layer ones that are, you know, credibly somewhat trending towards decentralization. There's issues with that for all the proof of stake networks. I guess conceivably they might be able to, I mean, it would have, it would require a code change and it would probably be very, I don't know, it would, it would capture a lot of attention. So they probably don't have a strong incentive to do that, just given that they already are really doing well uh, financially. But I think it's interesting. They, they basically had this massive head start on token emissions dating back to like 2017, 2018. And they might reap the benefits of it in terms of price appreciation uh, versus all of these other players that kind of launched initially in 2018, 2019 during that bear market and have these 10-year 
emission schedules that you know might lead to anywhere from one to ten percent inflation annually. Uh, I suspect CZ might think that BNB has good competitive position in that regard and probably wouldn't want to mess that up. Chuck, any questions or comments to add on on this story before we move on? I would just ask, I guess, like how closely related are our finance and BNB at this point? Like, has it grown large enough to actually be? I guess, like considered like a bit more decentralized from Binance, like the operator? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a good question. So there's probably two pieces to this in terms of like, and I'm just speaking more like just global Binance at this point. It's very much tied, like as crypto has grown, Binance has grown massively and BNB is appreciated massively because you can get some pretty big benefits by having a lot of BNB uh, and if you trade a lot on Binance. But in spite of that, I, it's still pretty much super, super centralized. That is, it's very, it's very much not decoupled from Binance at all. It's basically just Binance. It's kind of a mystery who runs these validators. And uh, it doesn't seem, they keep saying that it's going to decentralize. It probably will, but at least right now, it doesn't really seem like that's the case. So it's, a, it's definitely, I guess, a, a risk maybe, or at least just something, you know, an asterisk to put next to all that growth you know it's not like organic decentralized growth when we talk about them being the fourth you know biggest coin in the world it's inorganic it's all of them just manifested as a token instead of as equity but maybe that'll change i mean they're so rich they i mean in terms of volume and in terms of business i feel like they don't have to rely on decentralization they have so much <laughs> cash like yeah, so yeah. much thanks for that Saul. um mm -hmm. i want to move on to our final story and highlight something cool happening in the Ethereum space. And that's the, a new Ethereum token standard that was recently finalized and is being used by several major DeFi protocols. The token standard that I'm talking about is ERC4626. It specifies a template for locked or vaulted tokens. And in DeFi, it's like very, very common that a protocol will allow you to deposit a token and then get back a different token that you can use on other dApps, perhaps other blockchains. And the lock token usually accrues interest, that is yield, and then the additional token that you get in exchange for that, for locking in your collateral or locking in your holdings of say ETH or some kind of a stable coin, the other token that you get in return can be thought of as kind of additional reward for you putting in liquidity to that DeFi protocol. So before ERC-4626, every DeFi protocol had slightly different ways in which they enabled these kinds of vaults and issued um, native yield tokens. It made creating yield aggregators and services that kind of combine the activities of yield farming between more than one DeFi protocol more difficult. It made these integrations between one DeFi vault and another DeFi vault, that integration, all those integrations weren't easily, what do you say, codable. Um, those were all custom integrations because there wasn't a standard template that all the DeFi protocols agreed upon and said, we're going to use. So creating ERC-4626 was a, a pretty big initiative. And, and now that it's finally finalized, we're starting to see quite a lot of protocols using it. ERC-4626 does, in fact, make it easier for DeFi, which has this vision of being a very composable ecosystem 
can think about building blocks of DeFi protocols and services, building upon the activities of another, that ecosystem, it makes it a lot easier for integrations between different DeFi vaults to happen. It also really simplifies very basic parts of a DeFi application. Wrapping and unwrapping tokens, depositing and withdrawing your funds. This is part of the standard. It's like an out-of-the-box template for creating a DeFi vault, which if you think about ERC-20 tokens, ERC-20 is the standard for creating fungible tokens. It's a very similar way in which you can just like take that template and create a DeFi vault way more easily. So this is a really major benefit for the Ethereum DeFi ecosystem. It's a way to create a consistent and a robust implementation of DeFi vaults in the in DeFi. And it's just going to make, make it a lot easier for existing DeFi apps to innovate new ways in which they can use these vaults and then have it be composable with other uh, vaults created by other DeFi applications. And just to be clear, I mean, this standard was worked on since December. And over the last couple of months, I mean, it's been talked about, people have been raving about it. But when I say that it's finalized now, it means that Ethereum protocol developers have approved it and that it has the final standard label on it, uh, which means that it's ready for dApp devs to like ape into. It's not like an experimental thing that still is getting feedback from people that might be changed. It's up there with the ERC-20, ERC-721, all those standards. Like now ERC-4626 is part of that list. So if you go to like, there's a website that just lists all of the final EIPs and all of the final um, Ethereum code changes. And this is this is now one of them. It has that final status. And not to say that, you know, there was some kind of a hard fork that you didn't even know about that happened on Ethereum to activate the standard. The standard is literally just a template that can be used and or not used. So it all now depends on integration. It depends on adoption. We're in this phase where we're now, it's, it's just up to the DeFi projects themselves to, to start making use of it. And Yield Finance announced today, which is Wednesday at time of recording, that it's going to start using the ERC-4626 um, in the future. It's putting developer effort behind upgrading its existing code for the standard. Balancer is going to be building on top of it. Maple Finance, parts of Convex Finance, and a bunch of other big names have, have um, supported ERC-4626 and say that they're going to be doing some cool things on it. So so I think this is good news for the Ethereum DeFi ecosystem, and it's definitely a step forward in the right direction in achieving the vision of having a more composable DeFi ecosystem. So I'm pretty pumped. I'm excited to see what kind of innovations are going to come out of this token standard um, now being finalized and, and ready for DeFi DAP developers to, to start using and building on. Nice, nice. This basically like makes it way easier for a DeFi protocol developer that wants to like have users stake a coin and then issue out like a slight wrapping variation of that coin and just do that easier, like or more secure. Or is it both? And does it kind of replace like the existing way to do it? Because this is actually the first I'm uh, kind of reading into this. Yeah, it's both. I mean, number one, it's easier because you're not starting from scratch. Like you could 
look at the open source code of MakerDAO or look at the open source code of Yield Finance and then like kind of like shimmy it up yourself, like tweak it up yourself and use an implementation of it that you think is better. But by using the standard and using this template, it is a very easy way for everyone to start off from the same base, start off from the same template. And um, after that, you can basically any DeFi vault that uses the ERC 4626 standard can communicate a lot easier with other vaults that use the same standard. And you can create services that call upon like very basic functions of the ERC 4626 standard, um, just because you're, you're assuming that, you know, a bunch of DeFi protocols will already have that field also. Whereas before you couldn't really rely on that happening. Everybody might've named it differently. Everybody right. might've used a different process for getting the same kind of information. So it's really like a roadmap that I think will hopefully bring in a new wave of innovation that wasn't possible before DeFi 2.0 with lots of thoughts about that. But um, basically, <laughs> the new iteration of DeFi, I think, has kind of flopped. And so people are really going back to the basics right now. And hopefully, um, hopefully, adoption of the standard will be quick. But I think that's the biggest, biggest thing to be watching out for. It's, it's adoption, because no standard is all that useful. It's literally only a handful of DeFi protocols use it. Yeah, for sure. Well, it looks like a lot of them are on board with it. And it's always interesting to see ETH kind of lead the on the innovation front, what's happening in DeFi and see what bits and pieces other protocols will, will kind of borrow and use as well. Yeah, actually, speaking of which, does Avalanche and Solana have standards for DeFi, like lending, DeFi yield bearing assets, DeFi token vaults? Just the same as uh, Ethereum's. Yeah, AVAX is all plug and play into Ethereum. I mean, Solana... Their their philosophy around it is is a little different, and like the the architecture of smart contracts is is a little different as well. I'm sure there are standards, but they're not like as famous, I guess, as like these ERC ones. Like all of the Solana tokens use the SPL standard versus like the ERC twenty, uh, and also then you have like Serum that kind of sits on top of all of this, and that's like the glue that ties all the Solana DeFi together. Their kind of focus is on making it look more like trading in the real world versus competing with existing ETH DeFi. And that's been like why they built that whole blockchain from first principles from the ground up, really fast confirm times and like all of the innovations that you'll see to make it really fast at the account level, uh, making smart contracts kind of require all of the accounts that are touched at the beginning, which is you know, unusual for development. Uh, and then obviously Serum being the on-chain central limit order book that can also be used and called by other applications with their own front ends. Like that's, that's kind of like the, the approach that Solana's taken with DeFi, which I actually think is really smart and, and very promising. And uh, I get into all of that details and the forthcoming uh, ready layer one Solana paper that'll come out soon. Uh, very exciting. But um, yeah, the short answer is yes, uh, but it, it looks a little different. One more question that I have on, on 4626. Do you see any risks with this new token standard? I know you said like implementation has largely gotten the, the green light, but do you see any like additional risks, maybe, uh, I don't know, like concentration risks in a select few vaults, maybe like pricing risk from oracles, or does this actually reduce the risk of, you know, oracles? 
Yeah, it's a good question. There are security risks that DAP developers need to be aware of when using ERC-4626. It does not by any means make your tokenized fault foolproof. And depending on what kind of application you want to use it for, there are security considerations that you have to be to take into account. And those are very clearly listed in the final document for ERC-4626, which um, you can just Google and, and take a look at. I mean, one thing that I will say about security, I think the familiarization of users being able to recognize the template and then see how a decentralized application has used that template will make the smart contract auditing process, I think, a lot easier. Because if the smart contract, if basically the code of your DeFi application is always different every time, I think it can be harder on users to just identify what the components, what the moving pieces are. But I think when you have a template with very standardized fields for all the things that you need, so for ERC-20, you know, it's like supply. Um, one of the fields is supply that you have to put in. Um, so having like standardized fields, I think, will make understanding the components of what goes into a tokenized vault um, a lot easier to identify, which I think is a good thing for security. But yes, developers do need to be wary of how they implement this standard because it doesn't it doesn't by any means make your tokenized vault foolproof. Very cool. Cool. Well, yes, we actually have another report to highlight and to pump up from the Galaxy Digital Research team that is out this week, came out on Tuesday. And that one was written by Alex Soren, our very own head of research. And in his report, he talks about Bitcoin transaction fees and one of the most confusing charts about Bitcoin uh, right now, which is that Bitcoin transaction fees are at all time lows. It's never been cheaper to um, transact on Bitcoin. And this, even despite price cycles and bull runs that normally in the past have, have made transaction fees spike on the network, but it hasn't this time. And Alex in the report just gives a bunch of reasons why we're not seeing higher fees. And those reasons include things like SegWit, transaction batching, Lightning Network, etc. So highly recommend everyone listening to the podcast to check it out and then definitely be sure to keep an eye out for Saul's upcoming report on Solana and I've got one in the pipeline explaining Ethereum's upcoming merge. Some other very quick um, news items that I just want to do a quick lightning round on. The Ronin hack, which we highlighted during last week's podcast, it raised $150 million in a round led by Binance to basically reimburse all the victims of the Ronin attack, which is, is quite interesting. And Lightning Labs also raised a bunch of money in their Series B funding. They raised $70 million in efforts to enable stablecoin payments on the Bitcoin Lightning Network. So lots of raises happening in the crypto space. The Luna Foundation Guard added $230 million of Bitcoin to its ever-increasing stack. That's a lot of, of Bitcoin, just on, on, the, on the full vein of Bitcoin news. Bitcoin Miami, as I said, is happening this week. And Bitcoin has reached, I think it was last week or maybe a couple of days ago, it reached $19 million in terms of coin supply, which means that 90% of all Bitcoin that will ever be in existence has already been mined. Another huge milestone for the network. Those are kind of just some interesting quick headlines that caught my eye. 
Saul, Chuck, any other quick headlines that um, you thought were interesting, but we kind of didn't have time to get to in the in the podcast? Uh, just more on the fundraisers. Um, Saul coin metrics raised thirty five million in the Series C. Congrats to those guys. Near raised three hundred fifty million in the new funding round, which adds to a couple other like big, I guess, like ecosystem funds that have been announced in, in recent months for, for Near. Very nice. Yeah, I mean, during these podcasts, we always have so much to talk about, but not enough time. So thank you, everyone, for joining us for uh, this week's episode to stay up to date about what we're doing, what we're up to, and just get more insights on what's happening in the crypto space. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at GLXY Research, and also sign up for our weekly newsletter at galaxydigital.io slash research. Thanks, everyone.